I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Welcome to LiveWire, everybody. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We have a great show in store for you this week. Hanif Abdur-Rakib will be stopping by. He's got a new book out about Tribe Called Quest. Uh, we've also got Nora McInerney on the program this week. She is a friend of mine and also a, a writer and podcaster. Talks a lot about grief as she has been through some grief in her own life. Uh, and then we will have some laughs with Nori Davis, a stand-up comedian uh, visiting the Portland area, and then music from the lovely and talented Alila Diane. Uh, we decided this week to pick the theme of Bugging Out. That is a famous Tribe Called Quest song, um, but it has a lot of different meanings, actually, which I was trying to sort of explain to the crowd at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, and also to our show's announcer, Elena Passarello. So let's pick things up there on stage in Portland. Take a listen to this. <laughs> Bugging out is like, it's, it's up for interpretation. Yeah, to there, some are, degree. there are myriad ways to bug out, yes. depending on who you are and what you're up to. Right, it could be sort of like freaking out. I was just bugging out. You could just be confused. Yeah. Or you could also just leave, physically leave a situation. Yeah, almost like ghosting. Yes, yeah. which I am, frankly, slightly shocked I'm even saying this into this microphone for this radio show. But I came embarrassingly close to bugging out of a rec league basketball game I was playing in last night because <laughs> they were not passing the ball to me enough. <laughs> How rarely were you getting this ball that you... At this point in the game, zero times. Aww. And we were losing by 30-plus points. What kind of a wreck league is this? That, that... It wrecks my self-esteem. <laughs> it is basically... The team is called the Sledgehogs, which is red flag number one when my friend asked me if I wanted to join. We have lost every single game. Wow. And... Last night during the game, I just kept running around waiting for the ball. And then everybody else in the team kept not passing it to me and then getting it stolen by the other team. And I had this extremely strong impulse to walk over to the bench, walk past the bench, pick up my duffel bag, 
and leave. This was like eight minutes into the first half. <laughs> you think I'm trying to be like funny or real for, for the show. This was my plan. But we only had one sub. And when I went to leave, he was in the bathroom. Uh... So I was like, I have to stay until the sub gets back so then I can bug out. Mm-hmm. And I started to play it through in my mind, thankfully. The conversation my friend who invited me onto the team was going to have to have with the other guys about why that dude, Luke, had left in the middle of the game. Because he was the one that made you a sledge hog. Yes. He He, kind of vouched for me. He he welcomed you into the sledge hog den. Yes. Is that that the the, the sty, the sledge hog sty? Yeah. And and so it would be bad if he had to apologize. They would be like, why did your... 42-year-old, employed father of an adult child friend, Luke, leave a recreational basketball game from the Bellingham YMCA. Like, why would someone do that? And he'd have to go, I guess he said you weren't passing it to him enough? (laughs) And, like, only in imagining him having to have that conversation on my behalf did I somehow find it within me to stay on the court and not bug out. And by the time the game was over, they had passed it to me. I had shot two air balls, <laughs> which I'm going to be honest, justified them not passing it to me in the first place. I was getting into my car and I was just, I felt this huge wave of relief that I had not left the game because in the moment, the emotional feeling I was having was so strong, even though it was about something so dumb yeah. that it just felt like the only option. Do you, like, do you react to situations that way at all where you just feel, like, overwhelmed or somehow overlooked or just frustrated in a way that you think the only uh, reasonable response is to bug out? I don't think so. I think I'm the opposite. I think I can't figure out a way to leave even when I very obviously should. Like, I'm the, I'm the... I'm like the chronic stayer, just like there. And then I ask, you know, oh, you know how like when you're at a party and you're trying to get out of a conversation and then all of a sudden the out shows up and then you ask another question and then you're like, oh no, why did I open that door? Like I'm more of that. that Is this why you're still the announcer on the show? Because you have not figured out how to tell us you don't want to do it anymore? That's right. Well, I showed up as a guest on Livewire and I haven't figured out a way to leave. So (laughs) That is an absolutely true story. All right. We have a guest off stage, thankfully, who has plenty to say on the topic of bugging out and lots of other things, in fact. She is a friend of mine, and she's what you might call a reluctant grief expert in that she knows all about the topic. She comes by that knowledge honestly. Uh, her new book, No Happy Endings, is due out this spring. Let's get Nora McInerney out here to Livewire. Hi, Nora. Welcome to Livewire. Hi, Luke. I haven't seen you in minutes. I know. We've been, uh, we've been driving all over the town today. Visiting um, your sisters. That's right. I have two sisters that run local businesses here in Portland, and I am personally pumping up the local economy by bringing Livewire guests to their establishments. <laughs> um, can you give us a little context? Like, you're, you're kind of known for, for working with grief, and uh, you've been through a lot of it in your own life. Like, what, how did you end up with the kind of job you have currently, which is helping a lot of people through yeah. a lot of their grief? 
Um, well, in 2014, um, I, I'd lost my second pregnancy, and then five days later, my dad died of cancer, and then six weeks after that, my husband Aaron died of brain cancer. Yeah, uh, that was not my best year. Um, definitely a top five worst for me, including the year that my mom gave me a bowl cut. <laughs> um, like an aggressive one, and people kept saying, people kept mistaking me for Macaulay Culkin. Um, At what point did you just lean into that? Oh, right away. Yeah. <laughs> um, immediately. Yeah. I was like, yes, I'm a handsome boy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Give me um, your lunch money, you filthy animals. Right. And I, how did I get this job? Yeah, I, I was guess... so sad. And not a lot of people want to be sad, including me. Um, I definitely wanted to opt out of, of that part. I would have easily opted out of any of it, uh, but that was not an option. And I realized really quickly that I was so unspecial, completely, completely unspecial, and that uh, every day all around the world, FYI, people are just having terrible days and going through the worst thing ever. And um, I did the first logical thing, which was like quit my salaried job with insurance. Yeah. Nothing um, like terror across every spectrum of your life to really cure just the blues. light that match and be like, let it burn. What do I care? And <laughs> um, so I, I wrote a book, my first book, It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too. And when that was done, I had a lot more free time and I'd been listening to a lot of podcasts. So I, um, I sent a DM on Twitter to uh, a guy named Hans Buto, and I said, somebody told me you make podcasts, um, and I have an idea, which producers love to yeah. hear. They're like, oh, no one has any ideas. That's, That's how I got this job. Correct. Nothing like a cold call to really... From an idiot who says, like, do you even make podcasts? Like, I couldn't be bothered to Google I'll it. I'll take I'm one busy. pod cart, please. Right. <laughs> and um, he was like, you should actually email no one checks this email address at apm.org. And, um, and I did, and joke's on him. Because <laughs> yeah, now he produces now your show, Terrible producer. Thanks for Asking, right. which is amazing. Yeah. We are talking to Nora McInerney, by the way. She has a new book coming out, too, No Happy Endings. Um, one of the things that you write about in No Happy Endings that I have to say I was not expecting mm -hmm. was the part about how grief and extremely strong sexual desires really yeah. commingled for you, like in, oh, the, yeah. in, the, in the very short aftermath of losing your husband you were feeling very sexual. Like, I would go to yoga because sometimes afterwards, like, they might touch your forehead. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, my God. Like, I, I went to the dentist and was like, I love this. I, went, I did every medical thing, like, at, at all. Like, I was like, that feels so nice. Like, will you just, like, I would brush up. I would hug my friend's husband's, like, just, like, slightly too long. Like, just be like, just... And then if you could lean over here. Um, <laughs> is that something that you, because now... You, so common. Is that pretty common? So common. And to finish my last thought, people just want to talk about their hard thing, but no one around them will ask because everyone's afraid of saying the wrong thing. So I'm saying this for all the people who have lost their person and are like desperately um, hungry for touch. You are not a weirdo. You're not a weirdo. Um, 
so uh, part of my life is this group that I call the Hot Young Widows Club, because that's what it's called. Right. Um, You've actually got a book by that title coming out as well, right? I do. God, I've been busy, because my coping mechanism for grief has been relentless achievement. Mm -hmm. But getting back to that part, everybody, like, all, everybody in the Hot Young Widows Club is like, I feel a little weird because like, I've been having fantasies about the Property Brothers. <laughs> So you hear from people that are, who've lost somebody who, even though society tells us now this is the grieving period, the only way to respond to this is to cry all day. Right. That's not the only emotion, feeling, urge that is coursing through a person no. when they're in deep grief. And, or when you're doing anything, by the way. Like, we are not, um, like, emotional switchboards. So it's not as if you're just, like, only ever just sad. If you are good for you and your efficiency, also believe that you are a robot. Um, <laughs> But you know, the, the book and the title, No Happy Endings, is really about the fact that all of our life experiences and what it means to be a person is this constant commingling of, of feelings. And it's, it's often very complicated, but they are all really just strands to the same thread, which is called being a person. Um, we are three people up on stage. We have to take a quick break. So let's do that. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We are talking to Nora McInerney back in just a moment. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Based in Portland, Oregon, Fully is an amazing company that sells and distributes things that will help you feel healthier while you are being productive doing your work. How do I know this? Well, because I use a Jarvis standing desk from Fully when I am on stage recording Livewire. That's right. I can set that thing at any different height that works for me in that moment. It keeps the blood flowing keeps uh, me feeling engaged. I think you can hear the results, my friends, coming through the radio and the podcast. If you would like to stay healthy and productive while you're being productive at your work, whether it's at home or in the office, you've got to check out what the folks at Fully are doing. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. They've also got the Cooper Standing Desk Converter that gives you the ability to set your desk at any height you want as well and just uh, figure out a spot that works for you. I promise it'll make a difference in your, in your work productivity and how good you'll feel at the end of the day. I know it has for me. I also use the TikTok stool when I'm at home doing all of my uh, radio show writing projects. Uh, it's made such a difference for me and for our whole Livewire staff, and I know you're going to have the same experience. So again... Find out what Fully has got going on by heading over to Fully, that's F-U-L-L-Y, dot com slash Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, and we are talking to Nora McInerney. She's a writer. She also hosts the podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking. Um, you're somebody who has become a resource for a lot of people who are dealing with grief because it's something that you've dealt with at a, at a pretty young age or at least an unusually young age. Um, what is your advice for people who know someone who's going through grief? Because I, there's a specific story that you've shared with me before about somebody helping you when you were really in the depths of, of a lot of grief. And I think it's kind of a, uh, illustrates maybe a way to be with people who are grieving. Whatever you're going to do, just do a thing. So what can you do that is um, meaningful and necessary and consistent if you can and also does nothing for you? Like remove yourself from the equation entirely. My favorite thing is to tell people, don't write me a thank you note for this. But 
people have no idea what they need when their lives have been completely overturned. So the least helpful thing you can do is say, let me know if you need anything, because now you've just given me a job, which is to find you a job. And I think the story that I mostly complain about is asking somebody who had said that to me, can you watch my child? Because I think I'm gonna have a mental breakdown if I don't go outside and run as fast as I can um, until I fall apart. And they said, not now, I'm, I wanna go to brunch, Oh. And I was like, cool, I will never ask anyone for anything again. Is that why they found that body by the highway? <laughs> yeah. And the jury found you not guilty, too, I believe. Mm. Uh, but my, my friend Hannah, who is also a part of uh, the Terrible Thanks for Asking show, uh, we became friends truly after uh, Aaron died because Hannah would send me messages and she would say, I'm at Costco, I'm going to grab uh, milk, eggs, and butter. They're going to be on your back step. You don't have to open the door, but I'm dropping them off. And I, I didn't have to do anything. And she had completely taken uh, away the natural urge that I had in my time of grief, which was to open my door, bring people in, and then let them bleed me dry by taking care of their feelings. <laughs> and then being like, I don't know how you're doing it. I just feel so bad for you. Like, I feel so bad for you and your son, like his dad's dead. I just think about it all the time and I can't stop crying. How are you? <laughs> Um, and instead, Hannah would just creep up my driveway, drop off the things I needed to keep a child and an adult alive, and then leave. And one day, finally, I did open the door, and she was lovely, but I never had to thank her for it. I never had to ask her for it. She just did it. So if you have someone in your life who is going through grief, you just have to kind of think about like what they're, what's going on in their life, basic day-to-day -day stuff, and try to give them something that makes that a little bit easier without any social context. Right, and if they're, if you, I don't know if anybody knows this, but we have a really bad healthcare system. Um, <laughs> and Mary, this might be news to you, but most of the time when someone has a health issue, it also decimates them financially, and uh, the death benefit you get uh, when your spouse dies is I think like $300, which would, cremate half of a half of a person. Oh my God. <laughs> and definitely buy like a 10th of a cheap casket. Um, and then you couldn't put that casket anywhere. Uh, you'd have to keep it. <laughs> it's just all very expensive. Everything's very, very expensive. And so most people are completely financially ruined. Um, so that's always, <laughs> that's always a helpful thing to keep in mind. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it helps to give people money. It helps to take care of their kids. And it helps to just consistently show up. And not just in those first two weeks or those first three months, but like the long haul. Because it doesn't, it doesn't end. Um, is there going to be a point where you are able to write about and talk about and host podcasts about something that is not grief related? Like, can you achieve escape velocity from this thing? Cause you're really good at it and you've helped a lot of people, but you're also really good at a million other things. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about my new show idea called space for entertaining. We dissect episodes of HGTV's house hunters. <laughs> Because everyone on there believes that they need space for entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. Like Knock who, that wall down. What life do you have that you are just, I'm like constantly entertaining. It's every day. I just, I need the space to be entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, and everyone needs, um, they need to always have their eyes on their children at all times. Like, I mean, yes. I have kids. I got to be able to see them. I'm like, yes. oh my God, I want a house that's all doors that I can shut myself in. <laughs> like, I have kids. I don't want to see them. Like, I make sure the doors touch the floor because they put their hands underneath. Like, no. 
on a hermetically sealed <laughs> panic room just for me. That's your next HGTV show yes. Yes. is Mommy's yeah. Gone. Mommy's <laughs> It's just a room full of doors. One of them may have one of the Property Brothers in it, possibly. Nora McInerney, everybody. Her podcast is terrible. Thanks for asking. Go check it out. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear... Alaska Airlines suggests one more taste of summer. Alaska Airlines now offers low fares on nonstops from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Plus, included in that low fare is assigned seating, over 400 free movies and TV shows, and power outlets at your seat in case your battery is low and the movie isn't over. Aloha, Alaska Airlines. Hey, it's Luke. Do not go anywhere because coming up, we have writer Hanif Abdul-Rakib talking about the time that he realized he wanted to be a music writer. You know what's wild is I remember being very young and knowing very early that I loved music and that I wanted the conversation about it to not stop with the song stopping. That's coming up very soon right here on Livewire from PRI. Our comedian this hour has appeared on Inside Amy Schumer last week tonight, as well as Conan, his Amazon special, You Guys Are Dope, is out now, along with his new album, Too Woke. Please welcome Nori Davis to Livewire. All right. Hey. All right. How you guys doing? Cool. All right. Yeah, I uh, got a chance to uh, see my brother over the holidays. Love my brother. He's transgender. He transitioned from a woman to a man years ago. And uh, he's very happy with his body. And I'm very happy that he's happy with his body. I love him very much. He's so happy with his body, he loves to brag to me now. He'll come up to me and say, look, man, I got more facial hair than you. I got more armpit hair than you. I didn't know he transitioned into a jerk. Like, I get it, but you don't have to flex on me, you know? Feels bad. You know, it felt like it feels like at the end of The Little Mermaid, like the mermaids are like, what's up, Ariel? And she's like, oh, y'all still got flippers? <laughs> <laughs> we just wanted to say hi. I got sneakers. <laughs> All right, girl, look, we just want to tell you, visit your father whenever you can, girl. Bye. Ariel's horrible. <laughs> I'm not going back up there. She going to act like that. <laughs> my mother, man, I love my mom. She just retired 35 years as a public school teacher. Any teachers out there, shouts out to you. Uh, yeah, there you go. You deserve it. Yeah, I really got a chance to see the contrast, man, when my mother retired as a public school teacher. Like, Versus like an NBA player, when they retire, you know, their jerseys in the rafters, and it's like, I had a good career, thank you, good night. But when the teacher retires, they're just like, I'm done. <laughs> Do you want to party? No! <laughs> this never happened. <laughs> I don't care about those kids. It's like, oh, 
Lord, he's so jaded. <laughs> I get why they're jaded, but man, I really feel like teachers are celebrities, but we don't treat them as such, you know? They are, they really shaped and molded our life. Cause like, that's why we're here today. We remember our first grade teacher, our second grade teacher. They, you know how they celebrities, you remember you was little, you seen your teacher out in public, you freak out. You're like, Mr. Burner, what you doing outside with shorts on? Why you got your ankles out? What are you doing? Oh, I'm just going to the beach. No, you live in school. I ain't never see you outside. What you doing outside? I never thought they had their own life. I thought when I was little, after school, my teacher just go back into the cubby and recharge. <laughs> it's 8.30, how you doing, class? Oh, I knew you was back there. He never leaves. Yeah, they're celebrities. They don't treat them as such. Like my mom, she's a local celebrity. I'll take her to the movies just to hang out, and every time she'll run into some grown-ass man that she taught in second grade, and he can't contain himself. Yo, Miss Davis, you remember me? You remember me? That's my second grade teacher. You remember me? It's me. And my mother acts like a celebrity that doesn't want to be bothered. <laughs> Hello, Trey. How are you, Trey? That boy can't read for nothing. <laughs> hey, baby, how you doing? What, mom, what are you talking about? Yeah, I would have left him back, but his mama too ratchet. Hi, ah, yeah, baby. <laughs> I'll see you later. <laughs> Yo, Miss Davis, let me get an autograph. No, baby, you can't read, I remember. That's all right. <laughs> me, and, uh, me and my fiance have a cat. Well, it's her cat. And uh, I'm happy that her cat likes me. Uh, I'm honored. Because <laughs> cats don't really mess with people. Like they, like, they pick you. You don't pick them. Like, her name is Livy. Every time I would pet her, she would move out the way and go, <laughs> we'll circle back. Stop being thirsty. <laughs> oh, that's Libby, man. Only Libby. Libby always makes me feel like I'm Anne Hathaway and she's Meryl Streep from The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> Hi, Libby. <laughs> Why is the cat food not ready? <laughs> it isn't ready. Here it is. <laughs> That'll be all. <laughs> and my brother has a, has a pit bull. Name is Frisky, adopted. I mean, I, well, what I enjoy about adopting animals, man, because like Libby's adopted also. I always love how you can see the uh, appreciation on their face, but you can see the trauma behind their eyes. Like their face is always like, thank you so much. You don't know what I've been through. <laughs> and I always want to know their story. I always want to know their story. Like, I really wish we had the ability to pour a little whiskey in their water. <laughs> then they drink the water, then grab a cigarette, sit on the couch and go, I'll tell you my story. <laughs> you call me Libby, that's not my name. 
My name is Trey. I'm a male cat. But I'm very happy to be here. You guys are dope, man. Thank you so much. I'm Nori Davis. Have a good night, y'all. Thank you so much. That Thank is you. Nori Davis right there. His latest album is Too Woke. All right, we're talking about bugging out this week on the show. I don't know if I was fully bugging out, but I certainly got very excited when I saw our next guest's face on a magazine as I was in line buying groceries. Now, in fairness, I was at a co-op, which is the kind of place where they put writers on the covers of magazines. Even so, his new book is Go Ahead in the Rain, a biography of a tribe called Quest. We are so happy to have him back on the show, newly minted New York Times bestseller. Please welcome literary star and magazine cover boy, Hanif Abdurraqib to Livewire. Hanif, welcome to Livewire. Oh, wow. Um, congratulations on this new book and the fact that it made the New York Times bestseller list. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what did that feel like when you, when you learned that information? Well, I learned in a really anxiety-inducing phone call um, I was doing an interview, and then one of the people from my press, who is really great but texts very abruptly, <laughs> just sent a text that said, need you to give me a call immediately, period. And I was like, oh, cool, well, you know, had a good run, but surely I'm going to die. This is the news that I've been dreading. Could be anything. That, a message like that is an act of aggression. Yeah. Because it has obliterated the rest of your day until you can get to that conversation, right? right it was rough. Um, but then we had the phone call, and it was fine. Also, to be a nonfiction bestseller in America, you pretty much have to be Megyn Kelly or, huh. or Michelle Obama, right? You have to be on the either poles of the like massive half-politician, half-celebrity spectrum. I am not Megyn Kelly, uh, <laughs> nor am I Michelle Obama. And so for me, you know, like, or you just have to be like any number of the same white person, the same white dude right. who's just like, here's how to fix America. Right. And I'm none of those people. And so I, you know, like, I think there, there's some feeling of triumph. And it's all, you know, I live in Columbus, where I'm from, and, and so I have a lot of old friends there who are um, never hesitating to remind me that I'm pretty much normal if not below them right it's like you know nobody like your original friend group to really keep your ego in check yeah where it's like i got a new york times bestseller and they're like cool can i have my casserole dish back you right. <laughs> you heathen <laughs> we're talking to hanif abdurraqib uh his new book is go ahead in the rain it's about a Tribe Called Quest. One of the things you write about in the beginning of the book is kind of the practical uses that black slaves had for drums. Right. And Can you kind of explain what was going on with that? Yeah, I wanted to... Um, the funny thing is, when I first proposed this book, I had to send in some sample chapters, like two. And I thought, well, gosh, I don't know what to write about. And so I started this long chapter about 
um, slaves coming to America and having instruments taken away from them, and then learning to, on their own bodies or with their own voices, learning to create music that was percussive, um, which eventually gave way to the blues, which eventually gave way to jazz, and then that story arc ends with me not being able to play the trumpet as a child. <laughs> to your dad's disappointment. Yes. So from slavery to me being bad at the trumpet to my dad's disappointment, it's all in a day's work, I think. <laughs> for, yeah. I tried to play the trumpet because the music teacher came to our class and played the theme to Transformers, <laughs> the cartoon, Yeah. and I was like, I have to learn how to do that. The one with the, like, the more the meets the eye kind yep, of. that yeah. exact oh, one. that's a banger, yeah. It was a very smart move by Mr. Morrison. Yeah. I mean, like, everybody signed up for trumpet because we assumed that was the only instrument one could play the Transformers theme <laughs> right. on. Um, and then you, you talk in the book about how your dad was a musician himself and also a big fan of jazz. Right. And, like, he was kind of... He, he, he was cool with some hip-hop and not as cool with other hip-hop, but Tribe Called Quest to some degree because of the jazz influence or the jazz that's woven through it. This was music that he was uh, into, accepting of, uh, happy for you to be listening to in the house. And I kind of wanted to play a song, that uh, a little bit of a song that you mentioned in the book. It's called Excursions. It's yeah. off of the low end theory. Let's just listen to a little bit of Tribe Called Quest. Back in the days when I was a teenager Before I had status and before I had a pager You could find an abstract Listening to hip hop My pops used to say it reminded him of bebop I said well daddy don't you know that things go in cycles Way the Bobby Brown is just amping like Michael It's all expected Things are for the looking If you got the money, quest is for the booking Come on everybody let's get with the fly Like what went through your mind and body and heart Like when you heard that song for the first time Well I think um there's a few voice slash instrument pairings in music history, like Q-tip and bass, right? Like an actual live played bass. I think his voice was just kind of made to bend around that instrument. And so I, of course I didn't think that, because when I first heard this song, I was like seven, you know? So I wasn't like, oh yes, the sonic qualities of Q-tip's voice. Uh, but I, I think there's something there, right? I think that Q-tip specifically isn't the best rapper of all time. He's not the most clever, Fife was more clever. But I think Q-Tip's voice was built for the type of music he was building for for the group, which is why he kind of drove the group. So I think I was fascinated by the bass line. Um, low end theory in general, I think I was just fascinated by the soundscape. Huh. I think you bring up a really good point about like when music writers hear some of the material that they end up writing about and thinking about, they're not music writers yet. They're seven or they're at the prom or whatever. They're watching MTV after school. Um, I'm, and I've read so much of your work writing about so many different musicians, and I always wonder about that translation point. How do you go from feeling and experiencing music to figuring out exactly what you're going to communicate to people? I mean, I think for me, the work is always in understanding that the music that I am taking in is worthy of being regurgitated on another different canvas, right? And so I don't think about music as a trivial thing. I do sometimes, right? I do when I'm at the gym, like, listening to, like, East Atlanta Santa. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, like, on the treadmill, like, okay, how can I make Gucci Mane culturally important? More so than he already is, right? Right, right, he yeah. Already is. But I'm always kind of... Um, you know what's wild is I remember 
being very young and knowing very early that I loved music and that I wanted the conversation about it to not stop with the song stopping. Right. Right. But I don't, again, when you're young, you don't know how to build an audience for that kind of dialogue. Right. I grew up in a house with um, a lot of music fans, but not a lot of music dialogue. Uh Right. And part of that was just because I was young and rambly and curious and no one particularly wants to talk to like a 13 year old about Fleetwood Mac B-sides, you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, So I think the work for me then began about building a dialogue where the songs were not the the sole thing. What do you mean by that? That's interesting. Well, because I don't think people... I don't really care if people like A Tribe Called Quest, right? I didn't write this book to be like, you have to like A Tribe Called Quest to read this book. I hope that through the reading of this book, they can articulate their own passion for fandom, you know? And I think that the things that are happening in the book... Tribe Called Quest is a vehicle for them, but there's also like a whole chapter about like Leonard Cohen and right. his like longtime love. And there's a chapter kind of about the history of black magazine covers. And all these things are on the periphery of Tribe Called Quest, but they're working in the same ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so the work for me is to figure out how to circle the song, but write about something larger that can give people an entry point. So how to find like the peripheral conversation around the song that people have feelings about. And the song, it's not that it's irrelevant, but yeah. it's just running it's alongside. It's doing what a song should do, right? It's humming underneath. Oh, that's cool, yeah. It's like the, the, the work and the music in my writing, hopefully, is the work of music in life. It's like the thing that's in the background while everything else is happening. We're talking to Hanif Abdurraqib. Uh, his new book is Go Ahead in the Rain. It's about a tribe called Quest. Uh, a lot of this book gets into... I mean, I would say briefly the history of hip-hop. There's some amazing books have been written exhaustively and thoroughly about the topic, but you touch on some of kind of the early days of it, and and you actually talk about some ways it was getting made just from a practical standpoint. I was wondering if you could kind of read from the book the part a little bit about the New York blackout of 1977. There's a lot of mythology around the creation of hip-hop, obviously, because there's no like uniform text or there's no uniform storyline. It kind of happened for different people at different times. But the most common story is that after the 1977 blackout, hip hop was really born because the thing that happened during the blackout was people could steal DJ equipment. (laughs) And so I love, I love this kind of mythical idea that the lights went out in New York city. And then when the lights came back on, there was an entire new genre of music. New York in the summer of 1977 was wildly hot. The city was already broke, and the Son of Sam had already attacked 11 people by the time the lights went out on July 13th, and he was still out there. I'm not talking about the lights going out or the birth of rap music, so much as I'm talking about the kind of landscape in which something frivolous might become political. Looting, rioting, and fires spread throughout the city that night, and there is something to be said about an urgency that arises in the struggling and afraid when what appears to be a basic right is taken away with the snap of a finger. And on the night the lights went out, DJ Grandmaster Kaz and his partner Disco Wiz were spinning in a park with their equipment plugged into a lamppost. They thought they had shorted out all the city's power themselves. (laughs) When they realized they hadn't, Kaz found himself among the looters, pulling a mixer out of the store where he had once purchased DJ equipment. A mixer does a lot of things, but a big thing that it does is allow a wider audience to hear what a DJ is spinning. Rap needed a new megaphone. DJs couldn't afford them. And then, with darkness, came a new kind of wealth. It must also be mentioned 
that the birth of hip hop is pretty much mythology at this point. And so, like all the best stories told by anyone, anywhere, any part of it could be true or not true. But I like this idea. I like the idea that the lights went out and on the other side, a genre found new life. I like to imagine that hip hop became political when someone threw the first rock or brick into a glass door or window and walked inside a store to retrieve a mixer. That hip hop became political when it took food out of one person's mouth to put food into another's. Hanif Abdul Rakib. Thanks. I've really enjoyed reading the two books of yours that I have, and I, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for how you write about music. I'm curious, though, like, do you ever suffer from that kind of feeling, the music that you listened to when you were younger or maybe in a more formative time in your life, and having a hard time not thinking that's when music was the best? I don't, because I, I came up most prominently when I had my own autonomy, where I could buy my own records, where I could listen to my own kind of thing. I was listening to, it was like in the late 90s when rap kind of, um, it was a race towards commercialization in the radio, right? Like post-Pac and Biggie's murders, rap just palpably shifted, right? And so I was loving a lot of stuff that older people, like older rap heads were telling me was stupid, right? It was like, oh, you're, you're listening to like Mo Money, Mo Problems, that song's stupid because it's on the radio, you know, whatever. And so I lived an entire life of people older than me telling me the music I was interested in was stupid. And now that I am one of those older people, I am like fiercely determined to not live a life where I'm telling people younger than me that the things they're listening to are stupid. Um, and all that really involves for me is asking people what they're listening to and not just on some kind of dismissive, like, what are you listening to? Make me a playlist. I'm really interested in what people are hearing in songs that I might not be hearing, right? And so if someone's like, I love this album and I listen to it and I don't love it, I'm going to go back to them and say, well, tell me what you heard in it that you enjoyed. Like, what should I listen to this next time around? Because listening is a critical act. I know that we call music writing criticism, but the criticism is just the end result of the already critical act, which is listening, consuming, right? Um, or at least I think it should be. And anything worth doing critically is, is an act of love in some ways. And I love music and I want to approach it um, with a little less cynicism than I approach. I have enough cynicism to power <laughs> several cities. And so I, <laughs> I really want to approach music very honestly and earnestly. Well, it really comes through in the book. Great job, and congratulations on Thanks. all the success so far. Hanif Abdul-Rakib, everybody. Thank the books you. go ahead in the rain. We have to take a quick break. This is Livewire from PRI. We have Hanif Abdul-Rakib here back in a moment. Hey, it's Luke. Special thanks this episode to Dana Almeter of Portland, Oregon, and Esther Jones, also of Portland. Dana and Esther are part of the Livewire member community, and they generously support our show with a donation each month. We are very grateful for that support because without it, we could not do the show. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, donations from folks like Dana and Esther or how this whole thing is even possible. So thank you so much to both of them. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon this week. We're talking about bugging out. 
Our guest is Hanif Abdul-Rakib. His latest book is Go Ahead in the Rain, a biography of a tribe called Quest. Hanif, we love the way you write about music. You've attended thousands of live shows. You think about music a lot. It's safe to say that we really, we trust your judgment on the topic. Uh, the thing is, we've decided that there's actually too much music out there. Oh, and, no. And frankly, they're making more of it every day. Every day. So what we're going to need to do is delete some tracks off of the world's iPod to clear up some space. Oh, okay. And we're so glad you're here to help us with this. It's a segment that we call Live Wire Court. <laughs> Here's how this is going to work, Hanif. We're going to give you two songs, and you have to decide, in your expert opinion, which one deserves to stay in the rotation and which one is deleted forever from human history. So never to be heard ever again by Never anyone. to be heard ever again. Okay. And, and we need you to choose carefully because your judgment on this is final. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. We're going to start with the, an easy one. Okay. The Gambler by Kenny Rogers versus 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton. That's not easy. Oh. The audience is empathizing so hard no, with Hanif you know, right actually, now. the only reason this is easy is because one is attached to a better movie than the other one. <laughs> and so I can't watch the film 9 to 5 without the song. Okay. You know what I mean? So I'll take 9 to 5. And I'll always take Dolly. Always. And I, but I love, I have a Kenny Rogers sweatshirt that I was going to pack, but I couldn't fit it in my suitcase. But I found a vintage Kenny Rogers sweatshirt. And I like wearing those because um, people are still amazed that black people listen to, to <laughs> things other than rap. Uh, but yes, yeah, shout out to Kenny Rogers, but I could pass on The Gambler. That is an extremely Solomonic, deft answer. You answered exactly right. So The Gambler's out. I, we all know how the song goes. It's fine. How about this one, Hanif? <laughs> Mr. Jones by The Counting Crows versus Semi-Charmed Kind of Life. <laughs> That's, yeah. That was it. That's like the 10th best Counting Crows song, and it's not even that good. Best Counting Crows song, in your opinion? Um, the one about Nebraska. What's Omaha? Omaha. Omaha. Somewhere yeah. in middle America. Yeah. The one about Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Mr. Jones deleted from uh, the, yeah. the iPod of history. We can all do without that. All right, that. how about this? Uh, Hit Me Baby One More Time by Britney Spears versus Genie in a Bottle by Christina Aguilera. That's easy. I mean, I... I think Britney Spears has a lot of better songs than that one, too. Uh-huh. Like, I think Britney Spears really didn't get going until, like, Blackout. Toxic? I actually don't think Toxic is that good. Really? That's a criminal That's a criminal take that I feel like a lot of pop music critics hit me for. But I don't think Toxic is that good. I think, like, I think uh, Give Me More is probably, like, the pinnacle of Britney signals, singles. So I would go with Genie in a Bottle. Um, because Genie Christina, in a Bottle uh, stays? Yeah, Christina had a rough, a rough kind of career arc past the first album. There was the weird album, and then there was like the double album with jazz standards. <laughs> How about this? For like getting pumped up for like sporting events or what have you, We Will Rock You by Queen versus Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. Oh no. <laughs> uh, Eye of the Tiger. Eye of the Tiger. Survives? It does survive. Okay. Uh, oh, y'all be fine. Uh, Literally, just like listen to Fat Bottom Girls or something. <laughs> <laughs> like Survivor has two good songs total. Queen has like... Oh, 
an entire an entire catalog right. of them. So Survivor survived. Yeah, the they survived because Survivor. without that song, their legacy is small. Mm. Queen could lose that song and still be like twenty five hits That's deep. Right. Yeah. Uh, this is this is uh, I don't know if this one's gonna be hard or not maybe not this is in the cover song category Aretha Franklin's cover of Respect yep uh, or Jeff Buckley's cover of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah oh I mean Aretha that's I as mean, I started reading well, the question yeah. I realized it's not I mean, a hard one Jeff Buckley's great uh, but I think when you're comparing the like Aretha reformatted Respect to like Otis has anyone listened to Otis Redding's Respect it's all like you come home to me and respect me. It's very it's like very, and an upbeat and peppy. It's upbeat and peppy, but like deeply horrible. Yeah, you know the difference between Aretha and Otis's um, respect is, you know, Otis's respect. The underlying messages give me what I want, and Aretha's the underlying messages pay me what you owe me. And I think those are very two different sentiments, right? Wow, this is why the guy has a New York Times best-selling book about music. Because that is an interesting and informative observation. Hanif Abdur-Rakib, everybody. Thank you, guys. Our musical guest this hour was to some degree bugging out when her touring took her away from her daughter for the first time. Those feelings and the experiences of new parenthood formed the basis of her fifth album, Cusp. Please welcome Alila Diane to Livewire. Be an albatross flying. 
Thank you. Alila Diane. Her new album is Cusp. All right, that is going to do it for our show. Thanks to our guests, Nora McInerney, Nori Davis, Hanif Abdur-Rakib, and Alila Diane. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko, and Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Ethan Fox Tucker, and this week introducing Ezra Rose. Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake, and our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members this week. we got to thank members Ed and Ann Galen of Portland, Oregon, for their support. For more information about our show or how you can get our podcast or newsletter or any of that other good stuff, head over to livewireradio.org. For Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew, I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.